So our jury is the Amer- as it should be, is the American people. As it should be. We'll see if it will be. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. We're going to talk about you, Ohio. Uh, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, and Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and yes, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast. And around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. You can run, but you can't hide from the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of what we call the Bradcast, though we could call it the Accountability Cast, perhaps, today, Desi Doyen. It does seem like some stuff, some accountability stuff. Some rare accountability stuff going on. Uh, Just as we go to air here, Missouri Governor Eric Greitens, Republican, has announced his resignation amid a political firestorm in his state that we've been uh, covering at various times over uh, recent months here. The 44-year-old governor, former Navy SEAL, thought to be a rising star with presidential ambitions, made the announcement that he was stepping down just 17 months after taking the oath as Missouri's uh, chief executive at the time with a pledge to root out, quote, corrupt career politicians. <laughs> OK, then I guess he started with himself. Yes. Apparently he's the first uh, swamp dweller he has drained, I guess. Uh, he said today I'm announcing that I will resign as governor of Missouri, effective Friday, June 1. Uh, he took no questions at this hastily arranged news conference said that this ordeal has been designed to cause an incredible amount of strain on my family. Now, this ordeal he's talking about begins but does not end with uh, an allegation that uh, he essentially tied up his hairdresser in his basement and uh, took off her clothes. It took photographs of her and said that he would essentially blackmail her if she told any anybody about the sexual affair that even the governor has now admitted that, yes, they had. 
So the strain on my family, hard to say that it was designed uh, for the amount of strain on his family, unless he's talking about the fact that he designed this and did this against his own family. Uh, He said millions of dollars of mounting legal bills, endless personal attacks designed to cause maximum damage to uh, family and friends. Again, he's worried about his family. Uh, Legal harassment of colleagues, friends, campaign workers. And it's clear for the forces that oppose us, there's no end in sight. And to be clear, the forces that oppose him uh, are not just his Democratic opponents in uh, my old home state of Missouri, but also Republicans who run the uh, state house there who have asked him to step down and who have convened a special session, a rare special session uh, of uh, of the state legislature to consider impeaching the governor after he refused to step down despite several uh, indictments, not just over that uh, uh, that uh, affair. alleged affair, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in February, a grand jury had indicted him for alleged invasion of privacy over that affair and the uh, nude photo he was said to have taken. A Missouri House committee reported in April a whole bunch of stuff that I won't share with you on FCC airwaves. How's that? Yes, please. Thank you. You're Don't welcome. Do that. <laughs> uh, it was a Republican led committee and uh, it was. Pretty extraordinary what this woman had to say that this guy did to her. He also faced a second felony charge in April for allegedly obtaining using a donor list from his veterans charity. He had used he had created this veterans charity and then used the the uh, the information, the email addresses, the contacts and so forth to raise money for his gubernatorial campaign. And yes, he also faced possible uh, possible impeachment thanks to that historic special session that was opened by the Missouri legislature to consider that question. Uh, So Governor Eric Greitens is out in Missouri. So at least there's some accountability today for a nice change. But I I would also note that he doesn't appear, as far as I can tell, to have expressed any personal responsibility or regret for not uh, not after he uh, his original uh, comment when he came out with his wife and said uh, what I did was wrong, having an affair. However, all of these other allegations of violence and blackmail, Mm. those are totally untrue, completely made up by my political enemies. Okie dokie then. Uh, So there you go. Some accountability. Also some accountability for Roseanne. Roseanne Barr, her hit show on ABC, has now been canceled just hours after she uh, tweeted a a racist comment about uh, a former uh, aide to President Barack Obama. So at least someone faced some accountability for their behavior on Twitter, if not the president of the United States, who over the weekend... No, actually, not over the weekend, over the Memorial Day holiday uh, on on Monday, tweeted, quote, Happy Memorial Day. Those who died for our great country would be very happy and proud at how well our country is doing today. Best economy in decades, lowest unemployment numbers for blacks and Hispanics ever and women in 18 years, rebuilding our military and so much more. Nice. The president of the United States tweeted, well, Vote Vets, which is a uh, progressive group of some half a million veterans and their families, responded 
to that tweet as inappropriate and self-promotional. They said that, uh, quote, this is the most inappropriate Memorial Day comment that a president of the United States has ever made. Self-promotion on a day to remember the fallen and wishing those remembering their deceased loved ones as, uh, quote, happy holiday is appalling. And they add the hashtag cadet bone spurs. Mm. Yeah, your uh, uh, Memorial Day is not really supposed to be a happy day as much as a somber day of remembrance, something apparently the president of the United States was unable to remember if he ever even knew that at all. I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't uh, I mentioned his tweet uh, because, believe it or not, we work hard to not respond to most of Trump's idiotic and inaccurate and offensive and sometimes very dangerous tweets each day. I think, Desi, you can attest to that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, it's a barrage and we try to ignore it because it's not actually as important as some of the other big major news going on. Right. But sometimes, I'm sorry to say, it can't be avoided. And, and sometimes I would ar argue often, in fact, these tweets have a very direct effect on the electorate. Whether we like it or not, he, for example, over the weekend, he had talked uh, Trump had uh, tweeted about some phony source from The New York Times, a source that didn't exist from The New York Times concerning the uh, the the Korean summit, which we will see if it happens or not coming up. He said that a White House source cited by The New York Times didn't actually exist. And then a whole bunch of other people, other reporters who were there uh, who heard this back uh, this uh, comment on background from this unnamed White House official said, yeah, that person does exist. His name is Matt Pottinger. And we have a recording of the background briefing that he offered. And they put that on, uh, you know, out there on the Web for us all to hear and to see that Trump was absolutely lying. But it didn't matter. The damage was done. The people who follow him probably already believe that, uh, oh, it's a f another phony source made up by The New York Times. Now, because today is a day that ends in Y, Donald Trump has done it again uh, and uh, saying today again, I'll explain why I think this stuff actually does matter. Um, he alleged on Tuesday without providing any evidence at all that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation will meddle in the midterm elections in order to benefit to benefit Democrats. <sighs> According to CNN, Trump's claim is his latest attack on the credibility of the Russia investigation as a politically motivated witch hunt. Trump tweeted the 13 angry Democrats plus people who worked eight years for Obama worked on the rigged Russia witch hunt. They will be meddling with the midterm elections, especially now that Republicans are, are taking lead, uh, taking the lead in polls, he tweeted. There was no collusion except by the Democrats, he added. Of course, using the word rigged there uh, should trigger memories for a lot of folks from uh, 2016 when he claimed that the election was going to be rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton. Now, the fact is, although members, some members of Mueller's team have, in fact, donated to Democrats, Mueller himself is a Republican. He was appointed as FBI director by George W. Bush uh, the man who appointed him as special counsel is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who was appointed by Trump himself. He's also a registered Republican. And all of that was only necessary after Trump fired James Comey, 
the FBI director, who was also a lifelong Republican. And uh, I'll note that uh, pretty much only Republicans head up these type of special investigations, no matter no matter whether it's a probe against a Republican president or a Democratic president. So for him to complain about there being some Democratic supporters on Republican Mueller's investigation is in and of itself absurd. But CNN goes on to note that Tuesday's conspiracy theory from Trump was accompanied by a barrage of tweets on the Russia probe, which repeated his previous requests for investigations into his political enemies uh, like Hillary Clinton, FBI, Department of Justice, Barack Obama, uh, James, uh, James Comey, etc., etc., those tweets themselves follow on an interview on CNN's State of the Union on Sunday in which Trump's attorney called the Mueller probe illegitimate and said that uh, the defenses that Donald Trump is making on Twitter and that he's out there making himself uh, were not meant, uh, uh, you know, as to convince to change the mind of Robert Mueller, but instead meant to sway public opinion about it all. Uh, of course we have to do it in defending the president. We're defending, um, to a large extent, remember, Dana, we're defending here, it is for public opinion, because eventually the decision here is going to be impeach, not impeach. Members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, are going to be informed a lot by their constituents. So our jury, is the Amer as it should be, is the American people. So there you go. He says it out loud. This yeah. is not about rebutting facts. This is about, frankly, hoaxing the American people uh, into, you know, believing these provable lies, these demonstrable lies that the president puts out day after day, these ridiculous BS claims. So, you know, as much as I hate even reporting on what this guy tweets, given how much BS is included in them, to some extent I have to, because, yes, those tweets, BS or not, do appear to be working on the American people and on the public in order at least to further confuse the American public about all of this. And that is the intention. Here's just one new example. Remember, all of Trump's nonsense uh, about millions of fraudulent votes. Remember this? The, the millions of fraudulent votes, anywhere from three to five million, were cast in the 2016 election uh, from uh, 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 who? illegal aliens or something. Non-citizens is what he was claiming. Right. And that, of course cost him, as he claimed over and again on Twitter, uh, that cost him the uh, victory in the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, who won by some three million votes in the popular vote. Well, despite the fact that there is zero evidence for that claim and even his own failed voter fraud commission was able to find no such evidence of millions of unlawful voters, Almost half of the Republican respondents in a new poll from Huffington Post and YouGov said that they believe that millions of voters illegally cast ballots in 2016, just as Trump has claimed. Forty eight percent of those who identify as Republicans in this poll said they believe as many as five million votes were cast illegally compared to just 17 percent of Republicans who said they do not believe that. More than one-third of Republican respondents, 35%, said they are unsure whether millions of people voted unlawfully. So to add that up, that means that almost 50% of Republicans believe that, yes, it happened. 
And if you add the people who are not sure if it happened, we're now 85% of Republicans either believe that millions of uh, voters voted illegally in 2016 or that they might have, but that they don't know for sure. And whether the claims are also uh, being bought, these, these claims from Trump's, or whether they're also being bought by Democrats is also a concern. A majority of Democratic respondents, but just 51%, so just barely a majority, said they do not believe that millions of people voted illegally, but one quarter of Democrats said they believe that millions of ballots were cast illegally, and another quarter said that they were unsure. So that means about 50% of Democrats also think it's either true or that it could be true. They are uncertain. And that's the whole point of all of this. You create, as your propaganda campaign, you create uncertainty and doubt. And you don't have to prove anything. You just have to repeat it over and over and over and over again in your media echo chamber. And it appears to be working. Coming from someone like yourself who has covered the the climate change hoax hoax <laughs> the climate change <laughs> denial industry has used yep. this to great effect so did the tobacco yep. industry when they were trying to avoid any kind of litigation or regulation yep so these tweets as as ridiculous as they are as much nonsense as they include do appear to be having an effect on the american electorate at least as we see in uh, in this stuff concerning uh, fraudulent votes. Um, last week, we covered a new poll from Reuters finding that while the public had preferred that Democrats take control of Congress this November uh, in previous polling of these, uh, you know, generic, as they call them, generic polls. Uh, now we have a small majority of voters in that same Reuters poll, as we noted last week, who prefer a generic Republican over a generic Democrat in the polls. As I noted at the time, uh, when we talked about that poll way back in the same in May of 2016, the public also thought that Hillary Clinton was definitely going to be the next president. So for those Democrats out there who think there is a blue wave coming, while there could be, um, don't count your chickens. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, Democrats think that, oh, we're, they're absolutely going to take back the one or both houses this November. And, you know, we tried to warn you about Donald Trump back in 2016. So pay attention to what we're trying to warn you about today. Because if you think a blue wave is a done deal, you may want to think, a, think again and then get busy. But wait, Brad, what about the big turnout that we've been seeing in all of these uh, these primaries and these special elections? What about the big turnout we've been seeing for Democrats in these in these 2018 primaries? Yeah, well, about that, according to ABC News uh, in the uh, over the weekend, in the 13 states that have held primaries so far in 2018, Democrats have seen a surge in turnout that has them confident they are harnessing discontent generated by Donald Trump and turning it into political gains. From Georgia to Idaho, from Texas to Pennsylvania, Democrats have consistently voted in higher numbers compared to previous midterm cycles over the past decade. In Georgia, last week, where former Georgia House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams made history as the first African-American and, and the first woman to, win the, uh, to sit atop the ticket in Georgia, 
running for governor there, we saw a Democratic turnout surge of some 69% compared to 2014. That's huge. Those are huge numbers. From just uh, just over 328,000 to uh, more than 550,000 votes. So big numbers there uh, in, in that particular uh, uh, primary for governor in Georgia. That's huge. But Republican turnout stayed essentially flat. It did not decrease. It actually increased by about 4,000 votes. But ABC notes that despite the enthusiasm the Democrats are seeing this cycle, particularly in traditionally red House districts and states, a number of Republican primaries have also seen a noteworthy uptick in turnout, suggesting that both parties are energized this year when we're going to see a fight over uh, control of the U.S. House and the Senate in November. Democrats are, in fact, turning out in significantly higher numbers in the U.S. Senate primary. For example, in Texas, nearly twice as many Democrats, over a million to be exact, turned out compared to the last midterm cycle back in 2014 when just about half a million ballots were cast. Now, in this case, you had an exciting uh, primary with uh, El Paso Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who won the Democratic nomination to take on uh, Senator Ted Cruz. But Republicans in the state, so you had Democrats had a million, uh, more than a million voters turn out for that race. But Republicans in that state cast over a million and a half ballots in this year's primary, which was a historic high for them. And Ted Cruz wasn't even in a competitive primary. In deep red Idaho, I'm getting ahead of myself, Ohio. (laughs) In deep red Idaho, Democratic turnout in the state's gubernatorial primary more than doubled from 2014. Well, that's nice. State Rep uh, Paulette Jordan uh, won the nation's uh, won the nomination to become the nation's first female Native American governor. If she is elected, she scored a big victory. But at the same time, Republican turnout in their gubernatorial primary increased by 25 percent from 2014. So seemingly good news in so-called red states, but Democrats may still face uphill battles in many of these places. And of course, that's before we even get into the regular election year fights to keep certain voters from being able to cast their vote at all and the inevitable court battles to push back against that. We'll cover uh, two new cases on uh, those fronts in where else? Florida, of course. And where else else? Ohio, of course. Naturally, that's coming up next. Both of those stories with the ACLU's Freda Levinson. Next on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, on Tuesday next week, we will have primary elections for the crucial 2018 elections in eight states, Alabama, California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota. The following Tuesday, five more states will hold their primaries. Uh, as we are now just under five months away from the crucial November midterm elections in which Democrats hope to regain one or more chambers of Congress in hopes of putting the brakes at least to some extent on the near complete control of the federal government by Donald Trump and his Republican Party in Congress. In addition to the political aspects playing out in the course of these elections, there's also the legal and constitutional aspects being uh, ramped up again in many states as voters fight again and still for the right to vote and to have their votes counted as cast, etc. And as usual in election years, states like Florida and naturally Ohio find themselves once again facing court challenges over voting rights. A new lawsuit filed last week in the state of Florida accuses Republican Governor Rick Scott's administration of making it more difficult for young people to vote by preventing early voting at public buildings on state university campuses. The election year complaint was filed last week by the League of Women Voters, and it seeks to strike down a four-year-old interpretation of Florida's early voting laws by Scott's chief election officer, that would be Secretary of State Ken Detzner, who in Florida is literally handpicked by the governor, who also happens to be on the ballot this year as he's running for the U.S. Senate in hopes of unseating Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson. Ken Detzner, Secretary of State Detzner's office, uh, issued an opinion in 2014 that the legislature's expansion of early voting sites to include government-owned community centers does not include, for example, the Student Union Building on the University of Florida campus in Gainesville. The city of Gainesville asked if the uh, Wright's Student Union Building on the UF campus could serve as an early voting site in 2014, and the state said no. The result of secretaries uh, of the secretary's interpretation of the early voting statute is an unjustifiable burden on the voting rights of hundreds of thousands of eligible Florida voters. According to the complaint, those burdens fall particularly and disproportionately on the state's young voters. As a result, the suit claims young people, many of them, will find it difficult and in some cases impossible to vote in Florida in 2018. The suit was filed in U.S. District Court on behalf of five students at the university. It's just the latest case of many over the years in which the governor is accused of making it harder for Floridians to vote. In response to the, to the suit, Governor Scott's office said that the University of Florida students, they can vote at other buildings on campus, but that would only be on Election Day, not in early voting. Scott's office said in response to the suit, quote, the political organization, and they're talking about the League of Women Voters here. Apparently, the League of Women Voters is now a political organization to Republicans. Uh, the political organization and the partisan D.C. lawyers that filed this frivolous lawsuit know that under Governor Scott's leadership, he has made it easier for Floridians to vote. This is obvious, obviously an election year gimmick to distort the facts. 
That legal action comes as Scott, who is a Republican, is uh, hoping to unseat three-term Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson, and as voters are being mobilized across the state of Florida and across the country to register to vote following the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida. Statewide, two-thirds of all Florida voters who cast their ballots in 2016 did so early or by mail. The origins of this latest clash between Scott and voting rights groups uh, goes all the way back to his first year in office in 2011, back when Scott had signed into law a Republican-backed elections bill that reduced early voting hours. That change produced record seven-hour waits in the uh, state of Florida and accusations of accusations of voter suppression back in 2012 when uh, Barack Obama won a second term in the state. Meanwhile, in Ohio, no stranger to long lines at the um, at the polls on Election Day and precisely these kind of lawsuits in election years. Ohio is now facing a different type of legal challenge, at least as of last week. Now, listeners will recall that we've covered on the broadcast in great detail over this past year or more the pushback in a number of states against extremely partisan, gerrymandered congressional uh, and state House districts, mostly in Republican states. A federal appeals court in North Carolina determined that all of the U.S. House districts there needed to be redrawn as they were carved out to offer a partisan advantage to the Republicans who created them after the 2010 census. That case now awaits a pending decision at the U.S. Supreme Court, where a ruling could come any day now in a similar case out of Wisconsin, where all the state legislative districts were found to be in violation of the law and the Constitution by a federal appeals court after Republicans there drew the maps for unlawful partisan advantage. In Pennsylvania, where Democrats hope to flip a number of Republican seats in their bid to take back control of the U.S. House, the state Supreme Court ordered all of the U.S. House districts there to be uh, redrawn after the state, which is long considered to be a swing state, uh, but has a Democratic voter registration advantage to the tune of about one million voters. After that state, Pennsylvania has seen the GOP win the same 13 out of 18 U.S. House seats in each of the past three U.S. House elections since new maps were drawn after the 2010 census. In Pennsylvania, at least, the state court ruling will stand in time for uh, for it to be for these new maps to be used in this November's midterms. And similar federal cases in recent years found extreme partisan gerrymandering in states like Texas and Florida and even in Maryland, where a Democratic district is being challenged at the Supreme Court. But now, not sure what took so long, but Ohio is being challenged for its extreme partisan gerrymanders for the U.S. House. Ohio's GOP-drawn U.S. congressional map uh, is unconstitutional, the ACLU alleged in a federal lawsuit that was filed last week on behalf of Ohio's A. Randolph Institute and the League of Women Voters, yes, that political organization, and a number of individual voter plaintiffs. The suit targets what it calls in Ohio a tightly controlled process that Republicans used in 2011 to draw that map which has routinely elected 12 Republicans to four Democrats, again, in a swing state, year in and year out, 
Even as the two parties have split Ohio's statewide congressional vote roughly evenly. Here to discuss this latest case is Freda Levinson. She is the uh, legal director for the ACLU of Ohio, where she has litigated cases focused on voting rights, unlawful purges of voters from registration rolls, protecting early voting and ballot access for voters in Ohio, among many other issues of constitutional note in the Buckeye state, though, frankly, given that this is Ohio, I'd think the above would be more than enough to keep her more than busy in that state. Uh, Fred Levinson, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. I'm so glad to be here. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, as I said, my immediate reaction to this case uh, is first, uh, hooray. But secondly, uh, what took you so long? And before you answer that, I note that the Republican Secretary of State, uh, John Husted's his office, uh, he's one of the defendants named here in this uh, in your suit, offers a similar question in their response uh, to your lawsuit in a statement where they say, quote, if the way the congressional lines were drawn was such an issue for the ACLU, the A. Philip Randolph Institute and League of Women Voters, why did they wait six years to file a lawsuit challenging the map? So I hate to agree with them, at least on this aspect, but why did it take so long to file this suit, Freda? Well, for the past three decades, cases have been coming to the Supreme Court of the United States challenging political gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court has said, yes, we agree that political gerrymandering, if it's too extreme, can violate the United States Constitution, but frankly, we don't know how to measure it. We don't know how much there is Mm -hmm. quantitatively, and so we can't determine how much is too much. So we really can't rule on this. There's no way that we can issue a decision striking down a map as being gerrymandered. And the the court consistently treated gerrymandering cases that way for literally three decades. It's only been in the past couple of years, uh, less than two years, that the court has finally found that there are methodologies, new methodologies, Mm -hmm. mathematical approaches Mm -hmm. that can be used to demonstrate how much gerrymandering there is and that can serve to give the court a way to um, measure it and Mm -hmm. determine how much is too much. So the legal landscape has only become really viable for us to to navigate and to bring a case like this recently. Mm. Um, Secondly, one of the big things you have to prove in a gerrymandering case is that the gerrymandered districts weren't only intended to be gerrymandered, but that they actually are, that they actually do um, work, they operate to discount voters' votes. Mm-hmm. Not only that they were designed that way, but that the, that the design is entrenched in such a way that it operates in a, in a partisan way. Mm-hmm. And we are now at the point in the decennial voting cycle mm-hmm. that we have three elections that have occurred that show that consistently, as you said, Brad, um, the Republicans are going to win 12 seats and the Democrats four, no matter how the voters of Ohio vote. This has been demonstrated now by three three elections, um, not just by mm-hmm. mathematical projections. And if successful here, uh, if your case is successful, 
because it has taken this long to essentially develop the record that is needed to go to court here, a new map wouldn't be, uh, even if you win this thing, a new map would not be able to be drawn up in time for the 20, 2018 elections. We would now be using the, these in the, in the 2020 election, correct? That's, a, that's correct, Brad. I think it's realistic um, to assume that we're not going to have relief for 2018, but that we could have a new map in effect for 2020, in which Ohio will elect its congressional delegation that now, year. Now, why not, um, since I mentioned some of those uh, cases that are before, that are still pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, why not bring this case in state court in this case, where in Pennsylvania, next door there, they had a, a much more successful outcome in that uh, they didn't have to wait for the U.S. Supreme Court. The the state Supreme Court said, yes, these districts must be redrawn. Was that not an option in Ohio? Well, we certainly considered that strategy, but we thought it best to, to bring claims in federal district court. Okay. And it, and it is a, an expeditious procedure in federal court. Um, normally, in most cases, you file a case with the trial court. There are appeals taken to the circuit courts of appeals and then to the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm -hmm. But in these redistricting cases, there's a two-step expedited process where you file first with what's called a three-judge court, and then there's a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. So there's only two steps. Gotcha. Still, though, we'll have to wait for that uh, uh, Supreme Court decision, I, I think. Well, I'll ask you about that in a second, because the other aspect about uh, Ohio's response to your case uh, is that earlier this month, Ohio voters actually passed a ballot initiative that creates a bipartisan process for drawing congressional district lines in Ohio. That's the good news. Uh, but uh, Husted's office, the Secretary of State, says the plaintiffs uh, here, in, in your case, quote, should respect the will of Ohio's voters who overwhelmingly approved a constitutional amendment earlier this month that established a new bipartisan process for drawing congressional districts starting in 2021. Uh, your response to that is, is that not, not good enough for you, ACLU? Well, we certainly do respect the voters. We take their vote to be a mandate um, that, that voters want reform, that are seeking redistricting reform. Mm -hmm. And we don't think that they should have to wait until the map that won't come into effect until 2022 mm. under ballot issue one. Gotcha. So that is so that's uh, fine. Are you OK with the uh, with the amendment itself as it was passed by uh, by voters in, in the event that you're not successful in this case? Well, we think that ballot issue one is a step in the right direction. Um, it certainly brings more um, light, more mm -hmm. public input to the maps that are drawn. But, as, again, it doesn't take effect until the election in 2022, which is quite a ways off. Mm -hmm. um, we need reform before then. Mm -hmm. And secondly, while it is a potentially bipartisan method of map drawing, if the parties cannot agree on the drawing of the map, then ballot issue one devolves into a one-party map drawing process again. Oh. And um, as Matt Hoffman, who is the Republican representative who led the um, negotiations to, that resulted in ballot issue one mm -hmm. in Ohio, said, um, and I'm quoting him, I think it largely enshrines the process that we have. That's what he said in an interview on Vox. Mm. In other words, that, that one party ultimately can draw the map if, if the parties don't agree. Yeah. 
And that party would. But end that's not a perfect result. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's not. I was going to say because that party, uh, particularly if uh, depending on the results of your lawsuit, that party who could draw the uh, the maps then for the next ten years, if that constitutional amendment doesn't work out and kicks it back to the legislature, um, that's going to all depend on what happens in in twenty twenty the election that you're essentially uh, fighting over here in this in this lawsuit. Uh, your, your suit also details a secret process that was used by Republicans to draw the current maps uh, after the uh, 2010 census. Uh, explain what you've discovered there and, and how that process uh, is in violation of the law as uh, the ACLU sees it. Sure, I'd love to do that. Let me just quickly correct one misimpression, and that is that we're challenging the congressional map, mm -hmm. the the the, ah. the map that Ohioans will use to elect their representatives, the United States House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. So these aren't the people that will be drawing the maps. Ah, this in the is 2020. The congressional delegation. Thank you, yes. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to make that clear. But yeah, what, there was a very nefarious and secretive process that took place that resulted in our current maps. Um, as you know, every mm -hmm. 10 years after the census, new maps need to be drawn. Mm -hmm in any state that has more than, than one um, representative. And that's because people move and, and the districts have to be drawn so that they have roughly the same amount of population so mm -hmm. that the representation is roughly equal mm -hmm. behind each representative. One man, one vote. So uh, every 10 years, maps are redrawn. And in Ohio, there is a, a legislative process for drawing the maps. The Republican party nationally in 2010 in anticipation of the map drawing process all across the country um, looked at states that were potentially flippable and it picked out states ohio was one of the states that it targeted and decided we're going to pour money into that state to try to obtain republican control and when we control it then we will hold the pen to draw the legislative maps for the ensuing decade. That way we won't have to spend so much, work so hard um, on elections. We can draw the maps so that the results are up for ordained conclusion. Mm -hmm. We can gerrymander because that is a tool that is available to the victor um, in our system, unless, of course, we get some reform. So they did that in Ohio, and then after they obtained control of both chambers of the Ohio legislature, when it came time to redistrict, a Republican national committee started a project called Project Red Map, yeah. which was an acronym for a redistricting map drawing project. Mm -hmm. came into Ohio. They worked with the Republican legislators. They rented a hotel room secretly. Um, they nicknamed it the bunker, mm -hmm. and they operated in that room with computers and with data, and they generated maps and drew a map intentionally that would confer upon themselves a 12-district to 4-district advantage in defiance and despite of how Ohio voters voted. And was that and illegal that, uh, to, to draw them in secret, to draw up these plans in secret in this hotel room bunker that they called it? We maintain that what they did violates the United States Constitution because it violates the right of voters to associate with and advocate for a political party, mm -hmm. which is protected by the First Amendment. It violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, 
in violation of the 14th Amendment, and it violates the, the Elections Clause of the Constitution, which says that states do have an obligation to conduct elections, but that they can't use them to manipulate people. What, when they did it in secret, though, is the process, that, that, that bunker uh, uh, process, is that in and of itself unlawful, or is that just a, a concern you have as far as why they were keeping the process from the public doing it in a, in a secret bunker? Um, according to our theory of the case, that this is evidence that shows that that goes to their intention. Gotcha. All right. You also name uh, Ohio Governor John Kasich as a plaintiff here. Uh, you quote uh, his friend of the court brief in the uh, Wisconsin case that's now pending at the U.S. Supreme Court in which the Republican governor of Ohio seems to say, quite frankly, uh, directly that, quote, partisan gerrymanders are unconstitutional, are harming our Republican government and readily can be identified and addressed by courts. Seems like he's actually on your side here, Freda. Uh, does he does he not seem uh, not seem to see this uh, sort of partisan gerrymandering that he uh, objects to? That does he not see that it's happening in his own home state of Ohio? Well, he hasn't answered the complaint yet, so we'll see. But um, in speaking about the topic, he has said exactly what you have quoted, and he's added that this is devastating for our democracy, and he's right. He's right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, call him as a witness, I guess, in this case, on your side. Um, very quickly, as I noted, uh, we're waiting here for a ruling now any day from the U.S. Supreme Court on uh, on whether partisan gerrymandering is, in fact, uh, a violation of the Constitution or if the uh, the court will punt it down the road once again. Um, they've already determined in a number of cases that gerrymanders based on race are impermissible, but as you noted, Fred, uh, partisan gerrymandering, they're still trying to figure out how to how to do that, how to decide what is and isn't a partisan gerrymander. So how uh, how might their ruling that could come any day now uh, affect your particular case just filed in uh, Ohio? Any idea? Well, we we predict that it will strengthen our case. It will, um, we we believe, bless some methodologies that we have employed here in quantifying the gerrymandering that takes place in Ohio. There's um, many methods, many ways of looking at it. Um, here in Ohio, no matter how you look at it, whichever expert methodology you use, they all point to the same thing. They all agree that Ohio is a very egregiously gerrymandered map. I'm just worried that they're going to come out and say, uh, well, it may be gerrymandered, but there's nothing wrong with that. They can do it if they want. It's not a race-based gerrymander, so that's perfectly allowable. Um, that's my concern about what may come out from the U.S. Supreme Court, but I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, very quickly, uh, Freda, before I let you go, I know there's another case that you're also waiting for on Ohio concerning a purge of the voting rolls by the Secretary of State of Ohio, John Husted. Do you have uh, any idea what, what to expect from the Supreme Court in the coming days and how that might affect this this November's elections, where the uh, Secretary of State has purged voters simply because they have not voted in uh, the past couple of elections. Yes. If, if we don't win this case, um, if, if our ruling in the Sixth Circuit isn't upheld by the Supreme Court, this could have a very, very bad effect on Ohio. 
and it, it could lead to bad consequences even across the country. Right now, we were able to, um, by virtue of our Sixth Circuit win, have an agreement with the Secretary of State mm-hmm. to continue the relief, even now it's continuing, where people who were purged for infrequent voting still are allowed to vote provisionally. If we lose in the Supreme Court, obviously, though, that relief would end. And also, if the Supreme Court rules against us and finds that this purge does not violate the federal law, mm-hmm. then other states will feel enabled. They, they will feel that, that they, too, can purge on this basis. And we're afraid that that could give the green light to purges all over. Yeah. Um, right now, we're hoping that, that the court will uphold the favorable ruling, though, and will agree that the law says what it seems to say that it says, and that is that you cannot purge someone merely for failing to vote in an election or in some elections. Boy, I hope they fall the right way on that, too, uh, particularly given that it's a stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, as I see it. Uh, Fred Levinson, legal director for the ACLU of Ohio. Greatly, uh, greatly appreciate you joining us here today. You can find their work at ACLUohio.org. And you can follow Freda on the Twitters at UserFredly. That's uh, user friendly on Twitter. Freda, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Good luck with the case. Thank you so much, Brad. You bet. Okay, we will uh, uh, turn the page here a little bit, take a break, and come back with, uh, boy, the the hurricane season is uh, off, uh, starting off with a bang here, and we're not even done really with cleaning up after the last hurricane season, unfortunately. Yep. Quick break, and we are back with some of those stories right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. According to a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine today, researchers have concluded that the death toll in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria is more than 70 times the official count, which was just 64 casualties. 
they add uh, what they call a lowball figure of at least 4,645 unrecorded deaths. That's the lowball conservative estimate right. of more than 4,600 people killed in the aftermath and in the hurricane itself. They note that the uh, it's especially challenging to tally death tolls after disasters like Hurricane Maria, where infrastructure and health resources uh, fell apart. The process, uh, they find, is even more difficult, particularly in Puerto Rico, because all disaster-related deaths must be verified by the Institute of Forensic Sciences, which means that bodies have to be transported all the way to San Juan in order to be declared by the medical examiner, examiner uh, as uh, part of as due to the uh, due to the storm itself in some fashion. Either that, or the medical examiner needs to travel out and check out the corpse, which obviously they were not able to do after uh, Hurricane Maria, given the damage that was uh, on the island. The survey found that interrupted medical care was the most prominent cause of death in the months following the storm and that there was a high correlation between remoteness and the loss of both health services and electricity. So, you know, imagine if whatever your health requirements are required Visits to a hospital, um, you dialysis, know, dialysis, for example, yeah, refrigeration the, of medicine, yep. yeah. Then you know, in the months that followed that storm, you may have died. The authors of the study conclude that, uh, based on their research, there are some. They say there are probably about five thousand dead Puerto Ricans who have gone thus far uncounted as part of the official uh, death toll from that storm. That. Remember, Donald Trump was very proud of that. He was very was proud of himself for that. Only only 17 at the time. Then it went up to 64. Now we're actually looking at uh, Hurricane Katrina numbers around, you know, from uh, 2005 in Texas uh, or higher with 5000 believed dead uh, due to that storm. Well, that was last year's hurricane season. This year's hurricane season is already off with a bang with the first uh, a named storm that would be subtropical storm Alberto, which has been uh, wreaking havoc. Uh, just a big storm system in the oh, yeah. southeast and the east uh, over the past several days. Uh, let's start, Des, in Ellicott City, Maryland. And I don't know, is that actually part of the same storm system up there? Actually, it is not. Ellicott City is part of a different, the Ellicott City flood that just happened over the weekend is a different storm system from Alberto. So I'm going to jump back to Alberto for just a second. Okay. Subtropical storm. Hurricane season doesn't start until June 1st. So this is actually in advance of the so-called <sighs> official beginning. And it's not the, uh, Alberto came close, very close to breaking the record for the earliest named Atlantic hurricane storm. Um, that uh, record was held, was, was broken last on June 9th in 1966. So um, it's already pushing the hurricane season. The Atlantic is quite warm and it's fueling Alberta with torrential rains that have been drenching Florida and Georgia and uh, and Alabama. Um, two journalists were actually killed in other rainstorms that were related to Alberta. Two journalists were killed in North Carolina when a tree fell on the SUV that they were driving. A TV anchor and a cameraman, as yes, I recall. Yes, unfortunately. And there's more flooding that is expected as uh, Alberto continues to just dump unbelievable amounts of rain. Mm. Um, now, moving on to Ellicott City um, up in Maryland, that is where the cleanup is beginning. Um, it is what's what's 
unbelievable about this is this is the second thousand year storm to hit Ellicott City in just two years. Well, then how is it a thousand year storm? Well, of course, you know, that's that's the way that uh, weather forecasters are trying right. to try to explain how rare and extreme and how big a storm is. It doesn't mean it really only comes once every 1000 years. It just is a statistic to say, hey, in any given year, you'd only expect to see this one in 1000 chance to see this kind of storm. This they barely recovered from the last catastrophic flood that they got back in 2016 and they were hit with this one again and um, very sad to say unfortunately the uh, body of a an off-duty national guardsman has been recovered he uh, was swept away in the floods trying to help rescue people and he wasn't even on the job and folks uh, may have seen uh, the video of this over the week. I mean, the flooding was incredible up to the uh, the top of the first floor, reaching the second floor uh, as the water was coming through right down the downtown Main Street area, yeah, just like as a, we saw two years ago. It was crazy. As it was these insane. storms keep happening for some odd reason year after year after year now. Uh, yeah, and um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, has actually documented that these extreme rainfall events are increasing in the United States. The Northeast alone has seen a 71% increase in extreme rainfall events. Other than that, climate change, totally a hoax. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. It's just uh, for fun that all of these uh, horrible uh, storms, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, droughts are, are suddenly happening. All right, one more that we cannot blame on climate change as far as I know. <laughs> uh, very quickly here, uh, the Kilauea volcano um, in Hawaii on the big island has now taken down the geothermal plant? Yes, unfortunately it has overtaken the uh, geothermal plant that's there on the big island, but it has apparently stalled, so it hasn't completely destroyed or completely engulfed the entire geothermal plant, but um, right now they're in a wait-and-see approach to see um, if the wells that they covered up are going to hold, and so far their precaution seems to be holding. Why don't they build geothermal plants farther away from volcanoes so this sort of thing doesn't happen? <laughs> There's not a whole lot of room left on the Big Island to get away from that volcano. Plus, don't you sort of need volcanic activity to yes, have do. a geothermal plant in the first place, right? This is true. All right. Well, that's uh, enough disaster out of you, Desi Doyen. <laughs> uh, more, no doubt, in our uh, upcoming Green News report later this week. Until then, thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, ACLU Ohio's Fred Levinson, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. You can download our shows anytime for free at bradblog.com. And while it's always free to listen to our shows, it is not free for us to produce and create those shows so thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate uh, as you are the only ones who help keep us going bradblog.com slash donate drop me email if you like i'm bradcast at bradblog.com and find follow and share us far and wide on the facebooks and the twitters at the brad blog okie dokie that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman Good luck, world. Yeah.